People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Hello, I'm Chris Nicklin with this week's People of Note. Albert Einstein is reputed to have said if the bee disappears from the surface of the earth, man could have no more than four years to live. There's doubt whether the great man ever uttered such a dire warning, and indeed whether things would be quite so apocalyptic. What's not in doubt, however, is that honeybee colonies throughout the world are suffering unprecedented devastation. And this is bad news for all of us, even if honey is not your thing. Over 70 fruit and vegetable crops that we humans rely on are pollinated by honeybees. Dr. Mike Orsop is South Africa's only bee scientist. Based at the Agricultural Research Council in Stellenbosch, he's the leading authority on our indigenous honeybee species, and the go-to person on anything apicultural. Mike, welcome to People of Note. Hello, Chris. I don't think many people are aware that South Africa has two indigenous honeybee species. Is that fairly unusual? Uh, subspecies rather than species. No, not particularly unusual. There are the common honeybee, the one that everyone everyone except in people in Asia would recognize as the honeybee, is Apis mellifera. And that's divided into about 15 or 16 different races or, or subtypes. And we have two in South Africa. Um, there will be lots of places in the world that will have two as well. Mm-hmm. What is specific about us is the one in particular, the Cape honeybee, Capensis, is, is endemic and found only in South Africa. Are our honeybee different from honeybees elsewhere in the world? The Cape honeybee is found, as the name would imply, in the Cape from from the west coast to around about East London and going between about 200 to 300 kilometers inland. And then the rest of the country is the Apis mellifera scutellata, um, unhelpfully named the African honeybee. And that stretches all the way from, from the Cape to the Sahara, basically. Are either among the honeybees that are pejoratively termed African killer bees? The African, our African honeybee, Scutellata, is is very much is called what, what the origin was of the African killer bee. In fact, I wrote an article 25 years ago calling mm. it the Pretoria killer bee because the bees that were taken across um, to Brazil in, in 1967 that became what is now known as the Africanized bees or the killer bees of America almost exclusively came from a queen breeder in Pretoria. That's the one that's now penetrating the United States and dislodging the more placid honeybees that they have there? Not really moving any further. It seems to have oh. pretty much reached its ecological limits. Uh, it's, it's spread. It dominates the western areas, the desert areas, New Mexico, Texas, southern California. It is still moving slightly on the eastern seaboard. But there are cold limitations to to how far it can move up through North America. And so it pretty much is not moving any further. It hasn't moved much in the last decade or so. And so does the African honeybee and, of course, the the Cape honeybee have heightened levels of aggression compared to other honeybee species? Always the million-dollar question. It is a very hard question to answer. because uh, environmental conditions and temperature, pollen availability are always factors that are important in, in how defensive colonies are. I'd much prefer to talk about colonies being defensive sure, than being sure, aggressive. Sure. So you almost never get to be able to compare apples with oranges or apples with apples because you, you're comparing bees in totally different areas. But best evidence would be that Africanized bees or African bees are certainly more defensive than than European bees on a number of criteria, uh, in particular the level of response. Once they get agitated, once they respond, they respond with greater vigor and basically the entire colony will attack you rather than European bees, which seems to be, which seem to be far more specific that some individuals attack rather than the, the, an entire colony response. And Mike, is there any particular reason for that? I mean, could evolution play a part? I think evolution could play a part. I think it's Probably more than anything, it's a a tropical species versus a temperate species, so uh, temperature plays a role. It it might well be also, this is why I hesitated right at the beginning, in that European bees, temperate bees have been 
modulated, let's call it, mm-hmm. by by breeding programs for probably more than 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So it's quite possible, perhaps even more likely than possible, that, that the worst of uh, the defensive responses in European bees have already been bred out of them by beekeepers, whereas in Africa we just have not had that level of, of, of breeding activity and we, we're basically looking at a, mm. an unchanged natural population. Yeah, so, so why is that? Why we have this slightly aggressive honeybee or, or, or honeybee that's ready to defend itself mm. more readily, why haven't our beekeepers tried to breed out, as you were saying, this tendency towards aggression? In recent years there have been attempts but I think it is much more difficult and again I think this comes down to the difference between temperate bees and tropical bees. We just have such a massive wild bee population. Because that's quite unusual in itself in comparison to places like the US and the UK. Well you see these estimates in, in terms of what percentage of colonies are actually managed or domesticated compared to wild and in Europe you know, it's pro- probably t- less than 10% of the bees actually are wild, living in trees, and 90% are, are, are domesticated, whereas in Africa it would be absolutely the reverse or even more so. Does that mean that our local honeybees have been tougher to domesticate, if that's the right word? I think they are tougher to domesticate, and again, I think these are really characteristics which are specific to a, a tropical country bee mm. uh, rather than a temperate bee. Bees in the northern hemisphere, their biggest threats are are temperature, essentially. They have a cold winter. They have to store a lot of food to survive. And and if if they are not in a safe and uh, secure nesting site with sufficient food, they will die. Um, That means that they are loath to actually just abscond or swarm or move and much, much easier to actually manage and keep in a single place. African colonies of bees, uh, in, by contrast, are much more uter- um, adapted to living with ephemeral, transitory, unpredictable weather conditions with uh, rainfall. At, you, know, you might not have mm-hmm. rainfall for, various, uh, uh, for, for years, and the bees actually are, are very adapted to, to moving and migrating large distances following the rain and following uh, f- food sources which makes them you know, pretty much like the wildebeest of, of, <laughs> of East Africa, much, much harder to actually manage. So, so they, they are tougher to or harder to regiment, to, to produce honey? They're much harder bees to, to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Mike, how about your first piece of music now? What have you chosen? My first piece of music is Mr. Bojangles from Sammy Davis Jr. This has been it's a song that's been copied by, uh, by many people. Um, I really like the Sammy Davis Jr. version because it's, he is just sort of who I imagine Mr. Bojangles to be. Great. Let's listen to it. This song, I cannot do a show without including this song. I certainly wouldn't do a show here without including it. It's very special to me. I was down and out. He 
looked to me to be the very eyes of age. As he spoke right out, talked of life, talked of life, that slapped his leg a step. He said his name was Bojangles, then he danced a lick. Right across the cell, grab his pants, take a better stance, jump up high. That's when he clicked his knees, then he let go that laugh. Lord, 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 he let go Shake back his clothes all around That was Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles Mr. Bojangles The man could dance He worked with minstrel shows Traveling throughout the South Spoke with tears of 15 years How his dog and he They would travel about But his dog up and died The dog just not old and died Years he's still free. He said, I dance now at every chance and honky tonks. For my drinks and tips, but most of the time I spend behind these, these county bars. You see, son, I drink a bit. That was Sammy Davis Jr. with Mr. Bojangles, the choice of this week's People of Note guest, honeybee scientist Dr. Mike Allsop. Mike, I believe that you quite literally stumbled into bee science because you'd been intent on studying bats and meerkats of all things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the frailty of youth, I guess, or the naivety of youth. I loved the idea of actually working up in the Kalahari because I, I love the Kalahari and meerkat seemed like a very sensible thing. And bats... Bats and echolocation, and particularly, uh, you get a couple of bat species that are that predate on fish in the waves. They actually catch them by sound in breaking waves, and I thought that was completely awesome and something that that needed me to look at it. You know, that's how it all started. Apparently, after human beings, honeybees are the second most studied creatures on Earth. Why do you think we are so endlessly fascinated by them? I think we are endlessly fascinated by them because we have a rather sanitized and perhaps a completely incorrect view of this wonderfully harmonious uh, society that all works towards a common goal and we perhaps are somewhat envious and would like our society to be a bit a bit more like that. Uh, certainly there, there's been a great deal of 
of ancient and recent studies and mm-hmm. literature alluding to those types of virtues to honeybee colonies. Yeah, I was going to say that, that is a bit of an idealistic notion about the the harmony within a bee. I, I think it is very, very, un- very much unidealistic. They are, they are every bit of tooth and claw as, as much as anything else. Is it also perhaps because honeybees produce something we covet so much, yet they can be quite nasty when provoked? Well, certainly the honey part of it has to be has to be fundamental to it. Um, people argue about which is the the primary alcoholic beverage, whether it is beer or wine. Well, they're both wrong. It definitely is mead. Made from honey. Uh, made it? from yeah. honey. And, and long before there were sugars or a- any other sweeteners around, honey was coveted and known and managed and literally worth its weight in gold. Mm. One of the things that fascinates me about a colony of honeybees is how life is ordered, you know, mm. apart from the queen bee who is effectively an egg-laying machine, there are very clearly delineated roles for the many thousands of worker bees. How does this happen? Because when you peer into a beehive, as, as we were alluding to a moment ago, there's so much frenetic activity, it looks quite chaotic at times. Honeybee societies are structured very much along what is termed age polyethism, so the workers... Chief, is that a mouthful? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, 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 just, it just means that, that, that uh, all the workers go through a sequence of life cycles or, 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 or jobs. So they start, that when they get born, they spend the first two days basically doing nothing. Then they become nurse bees and they feed the larvae. And then after nurse bees, after they've spent four or five days as nurse bees, they graduate to being house bees and they pack away honey and they clean up the nest and they store a- any material and keep keep everything ship shape then they then they become undertaker bees to get rid of any bees that are dying or di- dead in the colony they then become guard bees to protect the integrity of the colony and then finally they get they they, they graduate high school and they go out to be foragers and they forage until they die so essentially it's a life cycle thing it's, it just is a life cycle and unlike the queen bee who lives for a few years the life of a worker bee is comparatively short only about depends on how frenetic their their activity is but anything from three weeks to six weeks contrary to conventional wisdom there's apparently no real hierarchy in a honeybee colony the queen doesn't rule the roost so to speak in fact the workers dictate much of what goes on she certainly directs activities in terms of with pheromones but you could equally argue they direct activities they manage where she lays, how much she lays, they they decide on the level of foraging that takes place, whether the foraging is for water or for pollen or for nectar. So it's very much an interlinked system. I, I think it would be hard to put a real hierarchical structure mm. to it. Mm. So, yeah, so what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting is that it's not an absolute monarchy. No, not at all. Just explain to me, Mike, how, how the Queen emits these pheromones which kind of orders the life in the hive. She produces, well, as, as I say, things like foraging activity, etc., are not really directed by the queen. They are, they are directed more by positive feedback systems of how much, what food is coming in through the front door, that on a reward system, bees, they will get, if a high value of food is coming in, they get more excited by that food, so that stimulates more foraging for it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of brood rearing and and activities like that much of those are directed by pheromones that she releases queen bee has got all kinds of different pheromone sources primarily in her mandibular glands and these are chemical releases that that elicit and and cause specific responses in in the worker bees and uh, a queen bee when she moves around the colony she has a a court of young bees that are forever following her around Mm. touching her looking after her and as they do that they pick up these pheromones and then they distribute them through the colony so you, you you basically are getting this this direction and gentle message on a continual basis in the colony. And essentially it's telling the bees and the rest of the hive that the queen is alive and she's doing her job and that's laying eggs. And that's basically what it's telling them. Several thousand a day. Uh, Yeah, probably up to five to six thousand a day when she's really going well. Well, Carl von Frisch made the astonishing discovery just after the Second World War of how bees communicate 
It was one of the first breakthroughs in our understanding of non-human communications and the round dance and the waggle dance that we've all heard about. Have we learned much about bees' language since then? I don't think there have been sort of significant or, or, or major strides. I, I think that pretty much w- was the the be-all and the end-all, so okay. to, without making too much of a pun of it. What, what we have learned since then is that there, there are so many different... Uh, variances, so many little different dialects. Every region of bees, every different little geographical population has got a slight twist on on the language. What? So so they they actually have an accent depending where they come from? They have a a definitive accent. (laughs) That's extraordinary. Mm. Let's dip into your music choices again, Mike. What's your second track? The second track track that I've chosen is a a Bill Withers song with uh, marvelous Bill Withers almost seductive quiet voice which is which is termed grandma's hands um always was meaningful for me just to you know everyone needs to have grandma's hands whether it is grandma (laughs) or any other place a place where you can be safe and secure well here it is in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hand played a tambourine so well Grandma's hand used to issue out a warning she'd say Billy don't you run so fast might fall on a piece of glass might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hand Unwed mother, grandma's hand used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hand used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, grandma, understand that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, grandma's hand. Grandma's hand. To hand me piece of candy, Grandma's hand. Pick me up each time I fail, Grandma's hand. Boy, they really came in a handy. She'd say, Matty, don't you whip that boy. What you wanna spank him for? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have Grandma anymore. If I get to heaven, I'll look for Grandma. Bill Withers with Grandma's Hands, the choice of this week's guest on People of Note top honeybee scientist, Mike Allsop. Mike, the plight of the honeybee in many parts of the world has occupied headlines for quite some time now, and the term colony collapse disorder, or CCD, is well known, particularly in the United States where they've been really badly affected. Exactly what is it? I wish I knew. I wish anyone knew what colony collapse disorder is. Uh, is it a kind I, of a syndrome? It's a syndrome. Um, I, it certainly is not a not a, a term that's in vogue at at the moment. Uh, I also just need to mention that this decline and collapse of bee populations around the world is mostly a fallacy. Mm. There are actually more honeybee colonies in the world now than they've ever been, and they're will be more next year but there's been a, a very definite problem in places like the in certain places that so 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 essentially what we are seeing is we are seeing a redistribution of bee populations so we are seeing in some countries in the in the world where they still have sufficient natural forage and nat- natural space to keep bees we've seen a, a significant increase in in their bee populations but in agricultural industrial countries in the world where they've transformed their landscape significantly it is becoming ever more difficult for them to keep the numbers of bee colonies that they need and so in places like the United States and Western Europe um, they just cannot maintain the numbers of bee colonies that they used to keep and the numbers of bee colonies that they actually need and 
because they have these huge industrial uh, agricultural demands for bees now, they, you've got two lines going in opposite directions. Their, their demand for bees in these countries continues to grow, but their ability to keep them uh, because they just have sufficient forage is, 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 is getting reduced all the time. And that's why we're having these crisis points that the existing bees are being first forced to work too hard, being, being forced to move uh, and, and go f- to three or four pollination cycles um, and, and, and putting too much stress on the population. So essentially the crisis, the global crisis in beekeeping, it's not some single factor, it's not some single disease, it's not some or a syndrome or a particular pesticide, it's uh, the, the ability of an ever-increasing human society which needs bee, ever more bees to, to produce the ever more amounts of, of insect pollinated food but doesn't have the places to keep these bees. Are you suggesting that honeybees shouldn't be kept in the way that they are or exploited in the way that they are in places like the US and Western Europe? Uh, it would be lovely if there were if there were alternatives and Burmaka uh, plan yeah. that that's what's going to actually happen uh, and already is happening is that agriculture is going to try devise methods to bypass the 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 use of of, of very large numbers of bee colonies but at the moment there, there is there is very little other alternative if you if you want to make cherries and you want you want you you want you want seeds for onions or cabbage or, or broccoli, if you want almonds, then at the moment honeybees and commercial honeybees are pretty much the only way that you can do that. And in countries where they have very high demand, such as the United States, there's almost no other way but uh, to work with bees then in a, in a very industrial scale level where they essentially are feeding them and, and maintaining bees much like factory farming to keep them at a, at a higher than natural level. But Mike, it is fair to say that there have been some very damaging pesticides used by organized agriculture like uh, neonicotinoids mm. and, and the EU recently uh, placed a moratorium on it. These pesticides are clearly having a damaging effect on the biology of, of honeybees in many parts of the world, and, and this has contributed to a sense that the honeybee is in some kind of crisis. No, indeed, and, and, and the pesticide issue is very real, um, uh, and, and we have to realize that the pestis, that pesticides and these types of pesticides, these types of insecticides are, are designed to kill insects. That's what they, that's what they are there for. Um, uh, the pesticide companies, and I must say there's a lot of evidence uh, to support them, would contend that most of the big issue, the, the big problems have, become, have, have resulted from misuse of the pesticides, that they've been used inappropriately and incorrectly, and that if they are, if they're used correctly, that um, the, the, the level of damage is, uh, is manageable. Um, I don't really want to get into too much into the neonicotinoid debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's blame. Uh, I, I think I think there's merit on both sides of the argument. What, what is very clear is that since the development of neonicotinoids, the global use of pesticides has decreased by about eighty percent. And it is I personally fail to see the logic to go back twenty-five years to use pesticides that we used 25 years ago because we currently have a, a problem with these new generation pesticides. I think, I think we need to uh, resolve it in, in other ways rather than that. How about another musical break, Mike? What do you have for us next? The next song is Eric Clapton with Wonderful Tonight and there's nothing much more to say than listen to Eric Clapton and Mr. Slowhand.
Clapton with Wonderful Tonight, the choice of my guest on People of Note, honeybee scientist Mike Allsop. Mike, getting back to the Cape honeybee, Apis mellifera capensis, that we see buzzing around our gardens, how have they been coping with the challenges, the undoubted challenges, I, I maintain that, that have had honeybee strains elsewhere in the world against the ropes? Pretty much we've had the same problems. Um, uh, we've had... We, Previously, we had almost no pest um, no pest issues in, in in South Africa. In the last 20 years, we've accumulated all the global pests. So varroa mites are here now. In recent years, American fowl brood is here, and then probably as I uh, spoke about in the previous section, the the, the the factors that are really threatening bees are loss of forage, loss of s- sustainable ha- habitat, mm. and that's very much be- becoming a, a, a critical factor in South Africa. We, we have uh, a, a additional components to that in that our major bee forage are almost all exotics and often are weeds mm. so and in particular eucalyptus trees we have the classic conflict species mm. I'd, I'd like to get onto that in a moment um, but just what i want to clear up uh, you were mentioning that bee diseases that were previously unheard of in south africa really only made an appearance in in recent years is that is that a direct result of globalization would you say i would say that's a d- direct result of south africa entering the re- re-entering the world and how are these diseases introduced to South Africa? Almost all come through shipping. Almost all come in containers. Bee colonies tend to become uh, unintended visitors in, conta- in container shipping, in, in heavy machinery, um, and uh, place, a place like Galveston, Texas, they get almost 2,000 swarms a year coming through into the shipping ports. So bees do move around the world. On ships? On ships, oh, in containers, in, uh, in, in equipment. Mike, you mentioned the Varroa pest a few moments ago, and you did your MSc dissertation on the effect of Varroa on the Cape honeybee. And I believe our indigenous honeybee has shown remarkable resilience to this pest, which has devastated bees and beekeeping around the world. Indeed, yes. Uh, when Varroa arrived in, in in South Africa, we we had dire warnings from everywhere else in the world that now now we were going to lose all our wild bee population, and 
we, we, we would be back to captive beekeeping uh, dependent on, on, on pesticides to keep your bees alive like is the case in most other parts in the world. Yeah. And what, what, what is the pest and what does it do? Varroa, it, it's, uh, it, it glories in the name of Varroa destructor. It's it's a it, it, it's an ectoparasitic mite from from Asian honeybees. So it's a cross species jump, and it it moved across from Asian honeybee species onto Apis mellifera, and is subsequently spread throughout pretty much throughout the globe. The only large part of the world that doesn't have uh, varroa mites is Australia, and they continually very active to keep, to keep it out of Australia. So why do you think our local honeybees are showing such resilience? I think there's a whole range of characteristics, behavioral characteristics in, in African honeybees that makes them uh, more tolerant. In particular, they have a shorter breeding period, so the mite has a shorter time to be able to develop. But I also think the fact that our bees are essentially an, an unmodified natural population and that they exist out there without human interference is a major factor in, in, in us developing resistance. Basically, alone in the world, beekeepers in South Africa chose to let a varroa run its course without any interference. We did not use any pesticides. We basically allowed those colonies that were unable to manage it die out and the rest of them to to develop resistance and uh, i still largely believe that if the rest of the world were to follow that that same course they would have the same type of result interesting if you speak to beekeepers here in the western cape and uh, you mentioned it a moment ago they say the single biggest threat to bees in beekeeping here is the loss of forage what exactly is going on uh, we, we were, South Africa was always forage challenged. We never had, uh, unlike further up in Africa where you get to Mamba woodland where that's actually pretty good beekeeping area, Southern Africa never had a traditional uh, tradition of beekeeping. It's always been too dry. Um, so large-scale beekeeping in South Africa really only started with, with cultivation, in particular with forestry. And, and, that, and that's the forestry of the eucalypts. And that, that's essentially forestry of the eucalypts. And like it or not, eucalypts made up 70% or more of, of the honey produced in South Africa. And it's not only just about the honey, it's that the bees lived on, on the forage that they derived from the eucalyptus. And as our demands for eucalyptus have changed, so we use them much more for paper now than we use them for hardwood. So we're now planting different eucalypts, harvesting them a much earlier stage. So they, they're no longer uh, really good bee forage and then the the the, the existing hardwood uh, eucalypts are mostly being cleared as because they as everyone knows in the western cape we are very much a, a water stressed country mm. and eucalyptus do do use water and that has unintended consequences that it's becoming harder and harder for beekeepers to manage to find mm. s sufficient forage to keep their bees alive mm. Because the, the eucalypts, especially the blue gum, are known among beekeepers as power food for the bees. They really are a prolific source of nectar, producing a, a delicious honey. There are about five species of, of eucalypts which are really good for beekeepers. Their greatest attribute from a South African honey a beekeeping point of view, they produce nectar at a time of the year when nothing else produces nectar. In the Western Cape, this is particularly the case. In our dry summers, when there's very little else flowering and there's really no food for the bees, it's pretty much only the eucalypts that are actually providing forage. Mm. And with, without them, we have a six-month dearth period where it's, it's hard to maintain bee populations. What is the Cape honeybee's relationship to feinbos? Is naturally occurring feinbos unable to provide adequate bee forage? It definitely does provide good bee forage, perhaps not able to sustain massive numbers of, of bee colonies, but for the most part, the feinbos is actually pretty good, pretty good for bees. But again, that is limited to a large extent to six months of the year when we have rainfall. During the dry parts of the year, there's nothing flowering in feinbos, and 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 your density, your carrying capacity of a piece of ground is determined by what what you can carry at the worst time of the year, not by what you can carry at the best. So the, the, the great virtue of, of commercial crops like citrus and of canola and then of eucalyptus is that it provides a smorgasbord of, of forage stretching over the season which allows, as a region, 
you to keep a much higher density and much greater numbers of, of bee, bees than you would be able to keep if you just only had eucalypts or only had fine moss. Mike, let's hear your fourth and final musical choice. What is it? The fourth choice is uh, Leonard Cohen with famous blue raincoat. I'm always hopeful that I will understand what Leonard Cohen's trying to say if I listen to it long enough. It's four in the morning, the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better New York is cold, but I like where I'm living There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert you're living for nothing now i hope you're keeping some kind of record yes and jane came by with a lock of your hair She said that you gave it to her That night that you planned to go clear Did you ever go clear? Oh, the last time we saw you You looked so much older Your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder You'd been to the station to meet every train Then you came home without Lily Marlene And you treated my woman To a flake of your life When she came back She was nobody's wife Well, I see you There with a rose in your teeth One more thin gypsy thief Well, I see James away She sends her regard And what can I tell you, my brother, my killer What can I possibly say I guess that I miss you I guess I forgive you I'm glad you stood in my way If you ever come by here For Jane or for me Well, your enemy is sleeping woman is free yes and thank for the trouble you took from her eyes I thought it was there for good so I never tried and Jane came by with a lock of your hair She said that you gave it to her 
That night that you planned to go clear Sincerely, Elkhorn Leonard Cohen with his famous blue raincoat, the choice of B-scientist Mike Alsop. Mike, South Africa consumes in the region of 4,000 tons of honey a year, yet local beekeepers are able to produce only about 1,500 tons. Where is most of the shortfall imported from? Almost all of it is coming from China, but uh, there can be honey coming in from other places. Uh, More recently, a fair amount of honey is coming in from Zambia. A red flag uh, has been raised for some time about much of the quality of Chinese honey. In fact, the extent to which it is adulterated was the subject of a recent hard-hitting Netflix documentary. How aware are consumers about the honey they eat? I think consumers in South Africa are very unaware uh, of the honey that they eat. I think, uh, for the most part, people in South Africa buy honey on the basis of, of, of color, they buy it on the basis of price, and they buy it on the basis of, of direct appearance. Do you think there's a problem with Chinese honey? To my palate, Chinese honey, most of the Chinese honey that comes into South Africa is not very nice. That does not mean that it's not honey, and that does not mean that it's, not, that it's adulterated. Um, but there are some very serious allegations that large quantities of honey are mixed with stuff like corn syrup. They definitely are probably giving that flavour that you don't they, like. <laughs> there definitely have been problems with, with with adulterated honey from all over the world, including from China. And China um, definitely has a bad reputation for for adulterated honey, but it's certainly not the only place. The stretching of honey by by adding corn syrups or high fructose syrups or, or, or milk sugars or uh, has been uh, has happened all over the world. Increasingly, as honey becomes a more luxury product, people are doing that. My bigger concern, to be honest, is that we have some non-beekeepers, but people involved in the, the, the packaging industry in South Africa that, that might be doing this rather than just Chinese honey. I personally have not seen any evidence that, we've, that we have any problems with imported Chinese honey. Samples, when they come in, are taken and, and analyzed. Um, our biggest problem in this regard is we actually do not have the, the wherewithal to, to properly analyze these samples in South Africa. And we actually, there's no lab that actually can 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 uh, detect this level of adulteration. And at the moment, we're actually sending samples uh, to Germany for analysis. So no simple method to check the purity of honey? Now, if you look on the web, you'll see so many different things that you do a water test and do a pencil test and do a this test and do a that test. Those will detect only the most um, obvious adulteration, but the the more sophisticated if, if we are getting uh, honey from from other countries that that is adulterated, it will be a sophisticated uh, product that will be almost impossible to detect. Mm. And of course, all imported honey has to be irradiated to remove microbial contamination that might affect local honeybees, and we know what irradiation involves. That can't be ideal. Again, there's very little data on this. The, the only data that I'm aware of, there's only one publication, and that is that it reports that the irradiation of honey doesn't actually change the, the health benefits of, of honey at all. But I definitely think that that is a matter that needs to be researched in, in more detail. We are the only country in the world that irradiates honey at a large scale, so we should probably do some work on it. Would South African consumers be helping to sustain our local bees in any way by opting for local honeys rather than blended foreign ones, even if it is more expensive? Definitely. Supporting local beekeepers, the, the, the value of bees is not in honey. The value of bees is in, is in pollination, sure, yeah. is to be able to sustain our bee. But every beekeeper has two arrows in their quiver and one is honey and one is pollination not every beekeeper but, but almost every beekeeper and by by supporting local beekeepers on the honey side you're actually uh, making local beekeeping more sustainable which uh, pr- provides for for us to have much better 
security in in the whole agricultural pollination and the whole food security um, uh, crisis in inverted commas. International concern about the plight of the honeybee has spawned urban beekeeping movements in big cities like London and New York. What can people in Cape Town do to help promote honeybee welfare if they, they move to do so? Every little bit of forage helps. So whether it's an urban garden, whether it is whether you're keeping bees there or not, the city of Cape Town, it's, 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 it's a truism that the, the modern cities are the, are the jungles of of the past and we, we probably have a hundred thousand colonies or more living in Cape Town so-called wild colonies which move in and out of the city and move in and out of commercial beekeeping operations so so anyone in the city that provides forage is uh, facilitating and assisting the beekeeping um, fraternity the actual keeping of bees within city limits, within Cape Town's limits, that's an issue that I have been very careful of, about. <laughs> Almost every town and city in South Africa had municipal regulations that prohibited the keeping of bees within city limits. Those were there for a, a reason, and that is back to the, that 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 nasty defensiveness of African bees. They can be quite twitchy and quite dangerous. At the moment... So not ideal for urban beekeeping? Not ideal for urban beekeeping. And at the moment, we're actually in a bit of no man's land because what has happened with the formation of the metros is that they actually have not consolidated regulations. So at the moment, a place like Cape Town has no regulations. It's not legal or illegal to keep bees within city limits. But I personally would not recommend uh, large-scale beekeeping uh, around uh, uh, people and dogs, etc., because bad things happen. So, Mike, essentially you're suggesting simple practical things like planting flowers in gardens to attract bees, al- although this is becoming increasingly difficult with the drought. Indeed. The, 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 there's, there's a limit to, uh, to, to what an individual homeowner can do, but we really need to consolidate our political activities when it comes to not removing forage that doesn't need to be for, uh, be removed, in what avenue trees we plant, in what park trees we plant, in what and and very much in terms of what crops we buy, th- there's always a choice between a, a crop that is that is or, or even a, a, a forestry uh, species that is more beneficial to bees and compared to others that are less beneficial, and and. I, I, I truly believe as as we move forward, pollinator-friendly marketing is going to become a, a, a very common and, and, and prominent factor. It already is in some parts of the world, and I think it, it will become a, a reality in our lives in the years to come as well. Dr. Mike Alsop, honeybee scientist with the Agricultural Research Council, thank you for joining us on People of Notes. It was my pleasure. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Hello, I am Andre Schwartz. Come and see me in The Sound of Music, now showing at Artscape until the 27th of May. Superb entertainment for the whole family. The world's most loved musical is back by popular demand. Book now. Brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.